That's great. And today we're actually going to be looking at the conclusion to the Canons of Dort, and I have a little story about the conclusions of the Canons of Dort. During my candidacy exam, I was in Loveland, Colorado at the church that I actually ended up pastoring, and Reuben Sarnis was conducting the exam, and he, we got through the Heidelberg Catechism, Belgic Confession, Canons of Dort, felt like, all right, I'm kind of on the downhill run here. And he said, I have a couple questions about the conclusions to the canons. And I froze like a deer in the headlights because I didn't know there was a conclusion uh, to the canons of Dort. And I'm like, oh no, what is, what's going to happen here? And so I, had to, I was embarrassed. I had to admit that on the floor of classes. I didn't even know there was a conclusion. And fortunately, my good friend, William, uh, was going to have his exam the next day. So I think, I hope, that I called him and gave him a solid that night and said, hey, if you haven't read the conclusion of the Canons of Dort yet, you might want to do this before tomorrow. Um, but uh, there's a conclusion to the Canons of Dort, which I invite you to turn to. It's on page 284 of the little book. But just as you're turning there, as we've went through, gone through the Canons of Dort, it's really talking about redemption. It's not everything that we believe and confess in Reformed churches. In particular, it's addressing the doctrine of salvation, um, how we are saved. And we kind of, it follows a pattern that uh, Dr. Godfrey actually laid out in his talk about it, which is kind of redemption planned from all of eternity, talking about our election, redemption accomplished fully and sufficiently in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Redemption applied to us uh, through the Holy Spirit, through the means of grace, and then redemption preserved. And so the Canons of Dort has kind of followed that outline, and it's really wanted to highlight the wonder and the beauty and the majesty of this particular reality that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, and according to the word of God alone. So one of the things that we really hope that you take away from the study of the canons of Dort and from Scripture is that Jesus doesn't merely just make a way of salvation possible, that Jesus saves, and that Jesus saves to the uttermost. And we talked about one of the abiding images is that we want to come away with when we talk about salvation is that it's not so much that we're in a hospital and we're sick and we just need a little bit of medicine or a little bit of help or someone to come alongside and do a, give us a push or an aid, but really it's the image of us being in a graveyard. We're dead in our trespasses and sins. And really you consider it, can consider it we're in the graveyard of the enemy of the great king. Uh, that we're dead in our trespasses. And so if you thought about it kind of like the Civil War and you were on one side or the other, if a general from the opposing army after the Civil War came over into the graveyard of those who had dishonored him, shot at his own people, tried to kill them, tried to destroy him, and he came over and had the power to raise you from the dead and then adopt them and make you an heir of his kingdom. It's just a remarkable image. We were enemies of God. We were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We were dead in our trespasses and Christ came to us in a graveyard and spoke life into us through his Holy Spirit and made us his and adopted us. That was planned from all of eternity. It was accomplished in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ by him paying the penalty for our sins on the cross and living a life of perfect righteousness in our stead. It was applied to us through the preaching of the gospel, through the Holy Spirit, and it's preserved in us by the Holy Spirit so that there's nothing in all of creation that can ever separate us from the love of the Father in the Son through the Holy Spirit. 
And that's really been the burden of the canons of Dort to address this. Because you recall that the canons were really a response to things that were being said uh, in a, a seminary that bled out into the churches. And so there were different things that were being said that contradicted or altered uh, the doctrines that we now confess so clearly. So the canons were responding to that and wanted to make a public response. And so let's hear the conclusion, and then we'll look at it in four different parts. And it kind of roughly like four paragraphs there. The preamble a public profession, a public plea, and prayer. So we'll just kind of look at that as we go through. So it says, and so this is the clear, simple, and straightforward explanation of the Orthodox teaching on the five articles in dispute in the Netherlands, as well as the rejection of errors by which the Dutch churches has for some t- have for some time been disturbed. This explanation and rejection the Synod declares to be derived from God's word and in agreement with the confessions of the Reformed churches. Hence, it clearly appears that those of whom one could hardly expect it have shown no truth, equity, or charity at all in wishing to make the public believe, and then these are lies or misrepresentation or slanders of our view that the teaching of the Reformed churches on predestination and on points associated with it by its very nature and tendency draws the minds of people away from all godliness and religion, is an opiate of the flesh and the devil, and is a stronghold of Satan where he lies in wait for all people, wounds most of them, and fatally pierces many of them with the arrows of both despair and self-assurance." That the teaching makes God the author of sin, unjust, a tyrant, and a hypocrite, and is nothing but a refurbished Stoicism, Manichaeism, a Manichaeism, sorry, a libertarianism, and Mohammedanism. That this teaching makes people carnally self-assured, since it persuades them that nothing endangers the salvation of the chosen, no matter how they live, so that they may commit the most outrageous crimes with self-assurance. And that on the other hand, nothing is of use to the reprobate for salvation, even if they have truly performed all the works of the saints. That this teaching means that God predestined and created by the bare and unqualified choice of his will, without the least regard or consideration of any sin, the greatest part of the whole world to eternal condemnation. That in the same manner in which election is the source and cause of faith and good works, Reprobation is the cause of unbelief and ungodliness. That many infant children of believers are snatched in their innocence from their mother's breast and cruelly cast into hell so that neither the blood of Christ nor the baptism nor the prayer of the church at their baptism can be of any use to them. And very many other slanderous accusations of this kind which the Reformed churches not only disavow but even denounce with their whole heart. Therefore, this synod of Dort, in the name of the Lord, pleads with all who devoutly call on the name of our Savior Jesus Christ to form their judgments about the faith of the Reformed churches, not on the basis of false accusations gathered from here or there, or even on the basis of personal statements of a number of ancient and modern authorities, statements which are also often either quoted out of context or misquoted and twisted to convey different meanings. Fortunately, none of that stuff happens today, so we're relieved by that, right? (laughs) 
but on the basis of the church's own official confession and of the present explanation of the orthodox teaching, which has been endorsed by the unanimous consent of the members of the whole synod, one and all. Moreover, the synod earnestly warns the false accusers themselves to consider how heavy a judgment of God awaits those who give false testimony against so many churches and their confessions, trouble the consciences of the weak, and seek to prejudice the minds of many against the fellowship of true believers. Finally, the synod urges all fellow ministers in the gospel of Christ to deal with this teaching in a godly and reverent manner, in the academic institutions as well as in the churches, to do so both in their speaking and writing with a view to the glory of God's name. It's an interesting in light of today's sermon. Holiness of life and the comfort of anxious souls to think and also speak with scripture according to the analogy of faith and finally to refrain from all those waves of, ways of speaking which go beyond the bounds set for us by the genuine sense of the holy scriptures and which could give impertinent sophists a just cause to scoff at the teaching of the Reformed churches or even to bring false accusation against it. May God's Son, Jesus Christ, who sits at the right hand of God and give gifts to men, sanctify us in the truth, lead to the truth those who err, silence the mouths of those who lay false accusations against sound teaching, and equip faithful ministers of his word with the spirit of wisdom and discretion that all, that all they say may be to the glory of God and the building up of their hearers. Amen. So you can see why the person who was examining me wanted to address this. It's so uh, rich and full and good, isn't it? A great summary. The first thing that it unpacks or has is what is a preamble? And so it's just talking about, and so here is the clear, the simple, and the straightforward explanation of the orthodox teaching. And then it says, of these particular five doctrines, which have been troubling the churches in the Netherlands. And, and it says, uh, as I said before, it's not addressing everything that we believe or teach about what it means to be reformed or what a reformed uh, church is. The Heidelberg Catechism and the Belgic Fesh Confession lay out a lot more that has to do with that. But this really wanted to get at the root of what we believe and teach about salvation from, from A to Z, from its planning, its accomplishment, its application, and its preservation. And then it published then the orthodox teaching along with the rejection of errors so that we could kind of see it in point and counterpoint with those who are rejecting it. And it's a real helpful and clear pastoral summary of what we believe and confess. It's meant to inculcate in us a childlike, not a childish, but a childlike trust, a childlike belief and confidence in Christ. And then notice that the basis for the claim was the word of God. We believe that our confessions and our creeds and the canons of Dort are a faithful summary of the word of God, but they're not on par with the word of God and they're not in addition to the word of God. They faithfully summarize what the word of God says. So one of the solas, you know, of the Reformation was sola scriptura, that it's based on God's word alone. And so throughout the canons, they made a point of trying to lay out where we find these things in Scripture, where does this come from in terms of the proof text. This isn't our own wisdom or our own philosophy. This is the teaching of, of God's Word. 
And Dr. Godfrey, when he was talking about this, he said that the point of theology is to make things simple. Isn't that beautiful? (laughs) The point of theology isn't to make things more complicated. It's to make them simple. And Dr. Godfrey is one of my favorite teachers and preachers, I think because of this very thing, that if you've ever listened to a, a Bob Godfrey sermon, it is simple without being simplistic. There's nothing simplistic about it, but it's very simple. And that a six-year-old with a six-year-old, a 90-year-old, people with various degrees of education can all come away and understand it and get the meaning of what he was being said and see the beauty and the marvel of Jesus. It's simple and yet profound, and it's not simplistic. And that's what we want the theology to be. The purpose is not that we can check all the right boxes on a doctrinal exam, but we want this to help them understand and to be able to see the beauty and the glory and the majesty of Jesus and to trust him alone, and to love him. And so the preamble is just kind of reiterating that and finding that all of this that we confess is found in the word of God. And if it's not, we should discard it. And so then the second thing, it's really making a public profession in response to public slander. So it says, hence it clearly appears that those of whom one could hardly expect it have shown no truth, equity, and charity at all in wishing to make the public believe, and then they have all the points, and then it ends, and very many other slanderous accusations of this kind, which the Reformed churches not only disavow, but even denounce with their whole heart. So here they wanted to publish something and say, hey, what does your church believe? And you wouldn't want to just stand there and recite the three forms of unity to them. (laughs) You could hand the three forms of unity. This is what our churches believe, and this is what our churches confess. And also, we collectively believe this. We believe them united. We believe them together. We believe them wholeheartedly. I remember one time as a pastor uh, in Colorado, a gentleman came to our evening service, and we were going through the Heidelberg Catechism. He'd never heard of it. He'd never heard of creeds or confessions. At the end of the service, we just gave him a little three forms booklet. The next week, he came back and he'd read all of it. And he said, I've, he was, I think, 27, 28 years old at the time. He said, I've never heard any of this. And he grew up in an evangelical church. He said that he and his friends have met for years. You know, every like Wednesday night, they sit around and they ask all these questions. And they said, and here was a book that had all these questions with the answers, the, you know, the cheater's guide, right? Uh, right in the back, telling you the answers to these questions that they had. How, how lovely. It's meant to be able to say, hey, here's what we believe about these things. Sometimes I, if you try to come up with an answer on your own, it's difficult. Or try to put it in your own words. Say, hey, here's what the churches have said. Here's what we believe about these things. Here's what we believe about election. Here's what we believe about the atonement. Here's what we believe about regeneration. Here's what we believe about justification. Here's what we believe about sanctification and glorification. Some other people have thought about this. We're not the first ones. And it's been passed down from generation to generation. So in response to public slander, to characterizations, to... um, misrepresentations, they wanted to say, hey, now, here it is, we've met. We've met for quite a while now. And we have 27 different nations represented and we're all unanimously saying this is what we believe and what we confess according to the word of God. And how wonderful for us that we don't have to come to it and figure it out all on our own. 
It's not a blind trust in what the church is doing either. Again, it's come, let's reason together. Let's look at the word of God and see what the word of God says to say about this. And I've been convinced by the word of God through his Holy Spirit that these things are true. The confession of the church is faithful. And so it's uh, publicly laying those out. It's a public document to rectify the misrepresentation, the lies, the slander, and characters. What are some of the errors that are addressed? And I would say that if the errors that they taught were actually true, then I would be troubled by them as well. If that's actually what our church is taught, then I wouldn't want to be a part of the church. But they're mischaracterizations. They misrepresent God, they misrepresent his word, they misrepresent his church, they misrepresent his grace. So one of them is that the doctrine of predestination by its very nature draws the mind of people away from godliness and religion. In other words, that old chestnut, that if you teach that, then people are going to be negligent or arrogant in their worship, in their sanctification and following Jesus. And we wanted to say from the very beginning that teaching the idea that you're predestined is actually the foundation of your good works. It's not, Dennis Johnson said, it's not a sedative to good works, it's a stimulant to good works. You were actually created in Christ for good works, which God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. And recognizing that he from all of eternity has set his affection on you and his love on you, that in space and time he uh, sent his own son to pay the penalty for your sin and to live a life of righteousness in your stead, and that he sent his Holy Spirit to raise you from spiritual death to life, and that Holy Spirit lives in you, and there's nothing that can separate you from that, and so you don't have to do good works to earn God's favor. He has all the good works he needs in Christ, and so now you are free to love and serve your neighbor. You are free to follow him. That's the foundation of our freedom. That's fundamental too. It doesn't distort or draw our mind away from godliness or religion, rightly taught or rightly apprehended by us, but it's the very foundation and freedom with which we go out and say, there is no condemnation for me. I have peace with God. I am forgiven. I am declared righteous. I do belong to him, and now I can go and do these things, not for his favor, but from his favor. The second thing, they say that the doctrine of predestination is an opiate of the flesh and the devil and is a stronghold of Satan where he lies in wait for all people, wounds most of them, and fatally pierces many of them with the arrows of both despair and self-assurance. And so the canons have really wanted to show from Scripture the goodness, the love, the purpose, the plan, and the wisdom and the mercy of God in grace. And in election. In Ephesians 3, it says, You were by nature children of wrath, dead in your trespasses and sins, but God being rich in mercy because of the love with which he loved. It's fundamentally saying it's not some arbitrary thing or a stronghold of the devil or evil. It's trying to base everything on the goodness and grace of God to recognize the reality of how we were dead, again, in a graveyard, and that God came to us and made us alive together in Christ, by grace, through mercy. Through nothing in our, that we had in ourselves, but just because of his love and his mercy. 
Another one of the misrepresentations was that this teaching makes God the author of sin, unjust, a tyrant, and a hypocrite. What's interesting about that is Scripture flat out contradicts this and says that God is not the author of sin, and the canons flat out contradict it. So this is just a lie and a misrepresentation. We affirm unequivocally that God is not the author of sin. So to say that we do misrepresents our view, our public view. This is what we believe and confess regarding these things. And then it also says that this Reformed doctrine, theology, faith, and practice are nothing but refurbished philosophies or religions. And so it mentions a couple. It says Stoicism, which is the idea, in short, that there's an indifference to pleasure or pain, which we don't believe. We rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. We're human. We experience these things. We take delight in the good things that the Lord has given us to delight in and to our enjoy them, food, wine, drink, uh, marriage, relationships, work, all these things, full, fully orb, wholeheartedly, we're given to enjoy and we're also to deny ourselves things at other times. Um, it's not an indifference to pleasure or pain. It's the reality that there is deep pleasure and deep pain in life. The other uh, view, Manichaeism, Uh, is a dualism between the spirit God and material God or between good and evil and eternal, just battling it out, kind of Star Wars-ish, or the yin and yang, where they're equal and opposite forces. Uh, Good is eternal. God is eternal. It's not like equal and opposite forces between God and Satan battling it out, and we're going to see who wins. God is even the God of the devil. And he has power over him, and he lets him come so far and no further. And his doom is sure, as we confess, as we pray, as we sing. Libertinism is to eat, drink, and be merry, do whatever you want, right? Because tomorrow you will die. It's indulge in life. There are no consequences. There are no consequences to what we do. There's no real sin or judgment coming kind of radical materialism. Just all that exists is things that you can see and touch. There is no spirit or spiritual. And then Mohammedanism is really Islam. And so it's saying that many people are just teaching the Reformed theology as worked over aspects of these things in one way or another. And then the other one, it says that this teaching means that God predestines and created by the bare and unqualified choice of his will without the least regard or consideration of any sin, the greatest part of the world to eternal condemnation. In other words, God created the majority of human beings to damn them without any consideration of whether they were a sinner or not. And so turn, if you will, to Canon Zadort, Head 1, Article 7. Head 1, Article 7, it's on page 260 in this book. So a lot of times we get asked about predestination or election. And everybody who reads the Bible has to have some doctrine of predestination or election because the words appear in Scripture. It's, is your view faithful? Is it 
solid? Does it comport with all of Scripture? Uh, so everybody has to have some view. And so sometimes if you've ever found yourself in a conversation and you're trying to remember exactly what we believe about these things, remember of Canons Adort 1.7. <laughs> Canons Adort 1.7 just gives such a wonderful definition of what we believe and teach regarding election. I'll read Article 6 and 7. Let's hear this. This says, the fact that some receive from God the gift of faith within time and that others do not stems from his eternal decision for all his works are known to God from eternity. In accordance with this decision, he graciously softens the hearts, however hard, of his chosen ones and inclines them to believe. But by his just judgment, he leaves in their wickedness and hardness of heart those who have not been chosen. And in this especially is disclosed to us his act, unfathomable and as merciful as it is just, of distinguishing between people equally lost. Right? See, the accusation, uh, the accusation was that God kind of arbitrarily chooses without any consideration of sin. And the canons are saying, we're all condemned. We're all part of the miserable lot in Adam. There isn't a group of people that he's considering apart from sin and a group of people that he's considering in sin. We're all in sin, dead in Adam. He said, and, uh, and in this especially is disclosed to us as act unfathomable and merciful as it is just of distinguishing between people equally lost. This is the well-known decision of election and reprobation revealed in God's word. This decision, the wicked, impure, and unstable distort to their own ruin, but it provides holy and godly souls with comfort beyond words. That's what we want this <laughs> doctrine that we're teaching of everything in the canons of Dort to provide comfort beyond words, an unspeakable consolation that I am his now and always, and that he is mine now and always. And there's nothing in all of creation that can ever separate me from the love of God in Christ through the Holy Spirit. And so then listen to this. Election is God's unchangeable purpose by which he did the following. Before the foundation of the world, by sheer grace, According to the free good pleasure of his will, he chose in Christ to salvation a definite number of particular people out of the entire human race, which had fallen by its own fault from its original innocence into sin and ruin. Those chosen were neither better nor more deserving than the others, but lay with them in the common misery. He did this in Christ whom he also appointed from eternity to be the mediator, the head of all those chosen and the foundation of their salvation. And so he decided to give the chosen ones to Christ to be saved and to call and draw them effectively into Christ's fellowship through his word and spirit. In other words, he decided to grant them true faith in Christ to justify them, to sanctify them, and finally, afterward, powerfully preserving them in the fellowship of his Son to glorify them. God did all this in order to demonstrate his mercy to the praise of the riches of his glorious grace. As scripture says, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world so that we should be holy and blameless before him with love. He predestined us whom he had adopted as his children through Jesus Christ in himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, by which he freely made us pleasing to himself in his beloved. And elsewhere, those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. 
Isn't that wonderful? If someone's, someone wants to know what a definition is or what do you believe about this, you can get an app on your phone. You can get a rather large tattoo if you want. Uh, there's many different ways you can make sure that this is with you. Put it in your, in your wallet. Um, but this is a fantastic definition. It's very pastoral, it's very comforting, it's very winsome, it's very faithful, it's very true, it's based on the word of God, and you see exactly what we're trying to get across here. In the beauty and the wonder and the majesty, God is glorified, his people are united to him, recognizing that we're all dead in our trespasses and sins, right? There's this common misery, and that God being merciful comes and doesn't just provide a way of salvation, but saves that one. Every one of his sheep will come. They will all hear his voice and he will come. Not one of his sheep will be lost. That's the glorious and wonderful uh, doctrine that we're trying to uh, teach uh, throughout the canons. We could go on and looking at more of those. I did want to touch on one more. It does also say that Some are teaching that many infant children of believers are snatched in their innocence from their mother's breast and cruelly cast into hell so that neither the blood of Christ nor their baptism nor the prayers of the church at their baptism can be any use use to them. You can see how that would horrify somebody, right? Why would I want to go to a church that teaches that? Do the Reformed churches teach that? Canons of Dort had one, Article 17. Listen to this. Just a few pages over, page 263. The salvation of deceased infants of believers. So we don't teach that they're snatched away from their mother's breasts and cruelly cast into hell so that neither the blood of Christ nor their baptism nor their prayers can be of any use to them. What does it say? Since we must make judgments about God's word from God's will, from his word, which testifies that the children of believers are holy, not by nature, but by virtue of the gracious covenant in which they together with their parents are included, godly parents ought not to doubt the election and salvation of their children whom God calls out of this life in infancy. That's beautiful. That's comforting. It's still difficult to hear if you've lost a child, but much more beautiful and true and faithful than what people said that we believed. God snatched them away, and they're going to end up in hell. The promise to Abraham was this was for you and for your children. They heard the Lord's. They belong to the Lord's. To the Lord's. There's one Lord. (laughs) They belong to the Lord. How wonderful. It's remarkable when, you know, David lost one of his children, what lost his child uh, from his affair with, Bathsheba, that he was confident that he would see that child again. Right? Like on, on what basis would you have the audacity of hope or that kind of confidence? It wasn't in what David had done. It wasn't just a bare hope. It was a hope in that, you and your children. This promise is for you and for your children. And the kind of God that he was and the kind of father that he was and the kind of mercy that he has that he would see his child again. That's what we believe. That's what we teach in this church. Next, there's a public plea. In other words, the Reformed churches are seeking a fair hearing. 
We want to be heard on our own terms, not on what somebody else represented about us, but what we believe and what we teach. And so it says, Therefore this synod in the name of the Lord pleads with all who devoutly call on the name of the Savior Jesus Christ to form their judgment about the faith of the Reformed churches, and it goes on, on the basis of the church's own official confessions and the present explanation of the orthodox teaching which has been endorsed by the unanimous consent of the members of the whole synod, one and all. So form your opinion not based on false accusations, not based on public opinion, not based on a Twitter feed or a blog, not based on the basis of even personal statements of someone's own experience in a particular church, not based on personal interpretations, not this is what it means to me or this is what I think it means. This is what we confess about the doctrine of election. This is what we confess about what happens to a child who dies in infancy. This is what we confess about God's plan, about Christ's accomplishment, about the application to us, and about the preservation. Not my own understanding of it, not what somebody else said we think, or their interpretation of how it sounded to them when they heard it the first time. I remember the first time I heard some of these doctrines, I thought, that just can't be true. From my own perspective and what I had thought, but this just can't be right. I was wrong. Go figure. God knew more than me. I can only think of one time on TV where the views of Jesus Christ that I hold and that are held by confessionally reformed churches have ever been accurately represented. I'm not talking about on a talk show where a Christian was talking about, like in a TV show, only one time. They're constantly misrepresented. And we have a public confession. It says, Here, here's what we believe about these things. Here's what we confess about these things. Moreover, there's kind of a warning, isn't there? There's a warning that says, the synod earnestly warns the false accusers themselves to consider how heavy a judgment God of God waits on those who give false testimony against so many churches and their confession troubles the consciences of the weak, and seeks to prejudice the minds of many against the fellowship of true believers. We have an obligation as ministers of the gospel to both warn and promise, because Scripture both warns and promises. And if you make false accusations against Christ's bride, that's sinful, it's slanderous. I'll take a lot of shots that people say against me, but my ire gets up pretty fast if someone says something about my wife. We have to be careful about how we talk about Christ's bride. We're part of that. Is she imperfect? Yes. Will she be perfect? Yes. But too often, people are so quick to say things about Christ's bride that have to anger him that grieves the Holy Spirit. Be careful little mouths what you say or what you type or what you tweet or what you blog. Consider the judgment of the Lord against those who bear false witness against his word, his son, his gospel, his glory, or his people. I don't know exactly what a millstone is, but James says it's better to have a millstone tied around your neck and thrown in a lake. That doesn't sound very pleasant than to mislead one of God's children.
Let's be careful. This is what we teach. Don't stray from it. And people who misrepresent it, we have an obligation to be able to, we can do that. You know, I was joking about the punches. We don't have to do it with violence, winsomely, thoughtfully, charitably, but engage for the sake of Christ's, God's name, for the sake of the glory of the church, and for the sake of the people. It wounds people when they're taught things that aren't true. How many times in your own life have you recognized something that you believed before that isn't true? And the baggage that that carries, and the wound that that carries, and the harm or the anger or the frustration that that carries. You know, William Godfrey was uh, preaching on this at Grace, and uh, his sermon on it is online at Grace if you want to listen to it. It's quite good. Um, But he said, if you want to know what a Democrat thinks, you don't tune into Fox. And if you want to know what a Republican thinks, you don't turn in, tune to MSNBC. He said, you can lie and mislead with, quota- with quotations, can't you? You can use somebody's quotation to mislead somebody about what they actually believe or what they actually think. And then William, as only William can say, Thomas Jefferson once said that there are innumerable lies on the internet. <laughs> you can mislead people with things, or just say things that seem authoritative or people don't question one way or another. If you want to know what a Democrat thinks, you're not going to get a fair hearing on Fox. And if you want to know what a Republican thinks, you're not going to get a fair hearing on MSNBC. And all we're saying is we want a fair hearing. This is what we believe. This is what we teach regarding these things. And brothers and sisters, we need to have the same charity when we're engaging with other people's views about what they believe and teach as well. Let's make sure that we get it right. The seminary that I work in, is uncompromising on that. You need to know your opponent's view as well or better than they do so that you can faithfully and charitably interact with it. They need to be able to recognize, yes, you fairly represented my view. We disagree, but that is what I believe. That's important. Wouldn't that be wonderful and winsome rather than, no, we don't believe that. No, we don't say that all the time. You're getting me wrong. You're getting me wrong all the time. Wouldn't it be great to say, no, you've got me exactly right. We disagree. That would be great. There's a, there was another P in here, purpose, which I will leave for next week for William. If you can do the purpose in the prayer, is that all right? Because it's noon. So thank you. <laughs> thank you. So before, before I go, I want to thank you for the opportunity to participate uh, in teaching. But also, William and I were wondering, is there anything in particular that any, we were going to end with the canons today, but pastor went long, go figure. Um, but is there anything in particular that you would like to study or examine together or explore? We, we're going to have probably like six more weeks, five more weeks now. There were six. Um, but is there anything, a book, a topic, a doctrine, something that you would like to, to look at? For us to consider, we have a consistory meeting on Tuesday, so if you have any ideas, we'd like to be able to take it back and consider it with them. Two kingdoms. <laughs> Two kingdoms, okay. Anything else? Anything else? Prayer. Prayer? Okay. There's still more that could be said. I don't think William would say that with the exhaustive teaching on prayer. (laughs)
Let me close with a, yeah, Paul. We'll, we'll chat about it this Tuesday. Thank you. Thank you for your suggestions. Let me close with a, a prayer that's in, in Ephesians. Ephesians 3 says this. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. And all God's children said, amen.